This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I didn't want to brag to people, but I'm just like, no, I'm not sick. Like I get up and I'd be totally fine. And I really wasn't showing. So it wasn't until probably about 20 weeks. Like I just looked like I was a bit bloated. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was just, everything was going perfect. Mm until towards the end and then everything sort of went downhill. So we certainly know that between five and ten babies per 100 are born preterm in Australia due to preeclampsia or the complications associated with preeclampsia. So I would say at a very like rough and ready estimate that the numbers of preeclampsia cases that I see are probably close to in line with those sort of stats, if not maybe a smidgen higher just because of the higher risk nature of the patient group I'm predominantly working with. With gestational hypertension, it's new onset hypertension that occurs at 20 weeks gestation or after without any other causes. So it's not a chronic that's just got worse or it's not on the background of, say, kidney disease, for instance. And preeclampsia is hypertension and usually with proteinuria but not necessarily so without kind of launching as the kind of poster girl of preconception we definitely know that when people have been like making all their dietary and lifestyle you know changes because it's to prevent hypertension you know first trimester health is a big part of that kind of picture so if they've been doing a lot of the preconception, we really can mitigate against those risks. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season two of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at cardiometabolic health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. In this episode of Between Clinical Minds, we change gears slightly to discuss gestational hypertension and preeclampsia with naturopaths Amanda Haberecht, Belle Roundtree and Jane Hutchins, and we also hear a mother's experience of preeclampsia. Hypertensive disorders of pregnancy affect 10 to 22% of pregnancies in Australia. Jane Hutchins is a registered nurse and naturopath specialising in reproductive health. She's completing her PhD in cardiac disease in pregnancy and the first year postpartum. Chronic hypertension is hypertension in pregnancy. It's diagnosed up until 20 weeks gestation. And the woman may have known about it before conception or may not have, and it may have just been revealed during pregnancy because of the additional cardiac load of pregnancy. And the cutoff for that is 140 over 90, so greater than either of those. 
With gestational hypertension, it's new onset hypertension that occurs at 20 weeks gestation or after without any other causes. So it's not a chronic that's just got worse or it's not on the background of, say, kidney disease, for instance. And preeclampsia is hypertension and usually with proteinuria, but not necessarily. So the diagnosis is gestational hypertension, so after 20 weeks, might have proteinuria or you might have symptoms of kidney damage or liver dysfunction or some of the neurological symptoms. You might have help, so hemolysis and thrombocytopenia and or fetal restriction. So they're working more these days on some of those other symptoms rather than simply saying, do you have protein or not? So it's a bit more complex because it's such a complex condition mm-hmm. and multi-organ and multi-system mm-hmm. condition. And preeclampsia is usually diagnosed in pregnancy and sort of the further along in pregnancy you get, the greater your chance. But it can also be diagnosed postpartum. So you, you it's rare, thankfully, but you do hear of those women who are completely fine and then you know, 12 hours postpartum have a stroke because they actually have preeclampsia. Oh, dear. Yeah, so, so looking, and you can have a thing of... Uh, preeclampsia that's superimposed on top of chronic hypertension as well. So that's kind of just being greedy, you're having a bit of everything. (laughs) It's just not enough. So combined, they're called hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And when you're looking at the literature, you have to kind of remember, it's like, oh, okay, is that all of them or are they just talking about gestational? But strictly that's kind of all of them bunched together. And because it's on a continuum, so if you have gestational diabetes, you've opened the door to preeclampsia, um, which is why they kind of lump them all together. And it can be hard to work out when you've moved from one to the other because it isn't hard and fast and every individual has kind of almost their own cutoff. So if you're normally hypotensive, you may not have to get to 140 or 90 to be really symptomatic. And the ramifications are huge, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the ramifications are kind of based on what the risk factors are, but also just on what happens. So the risk factors for chronic hypertension are just, you know, your garden variety risk factors, family history, obesity, other medical conditions, some medications. And the big one for me or my client base is polycystic ovary syndrome. Mm-hmm. And all those things are risk factors for gestational and preeclampsia. But where I say in Australia, about 6 to 7% of women have gestational hypertension. It's actually higher in first-time mums. It's about 10% in a recent study. So looking at other risk factors, so for preeclampsia, it's having had it before, your mum had it, your sister had it, granny had it. Having had pre-gestational diabetes or gestational diabetes or just garden variety diabetes. If you're older than 40 or younger than 18, so you're at that, those extreme ends of age, if you have twins or triplets or more, if, if, if you're <laughs> unlucky or lucky, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> and interestingly, if you're more than 10 years since your last pregnancy, and part of that might just be because you're 10 years older. Mm. And l- women with low vitamin D are at risk of preeclampsia. It's quite a, quite a big kind of correlation there. And can we just explore a little bit more that link between polycystic ovarian syndrome and, and these hypertensive disorders? Yeah, well, it, it's... It's complex. <laughs> so so there's the hormonal aspect, so increased androgenic effects, increasing blood pressure, but also insulin resistance. Insulin resistance increases arterial stiffness, increases hypertension, mm. 
increasing cortisol, it's inflammatory. And preeclampsia, in particular, that in, uh, interface between placenta and woman, uterine wall, there is an inflammatory oxidative process going on. So all of those things that we know are, are disturbed within polycystic ovary syndrome kind of get amplified once you're pregnant. So that in itself is one thing that drives me mad when people say, go on the pill because you've got PCOS. We want to manage your symptoms and reduce your risk of endometrial cancer. Yeah, cool, good. Then come off the pill and go on IVF. So it's like, okay, you've gone on the pill, haven't addressed the underlying issue. You come off the pill, which gave you a little bit worse insulin resistance, and now we're giving you IVF. So, you know, <laughs> get ready for preeclampsia. It just seems to be such a inefficient way to manage. <laughs> but that's also where we come in. Amanda Haberecht is a women's health naturopath from Sydney who's been in practice for 25 years. She says there are some interesting risk factors to be aware of. Definitely if they've got autoimmune disease or kidney disease, you know, even women who are kind of presenting with, you know, antiphospholipid syndrome, if they're pre presenting with um, lupus, you know, that we know that they're going to be an increased risk of definitely developing hypertension. Of course, age mm. is a risk that we know that the older we are, you know, the more kind of exposed to oxidative stress and methylation issues and potentially inflammatory issues. IVF is also a risk, but it's interesting because the research isn't just about IVF per se as being an increased risk, but more likely you can see that risk with hypertension where there is some donor material, whether it's donor eggs or donor sperm for that woman. Um, so it's a, um, that additional exposure to kind of unfamiliar DNA mm -hmm. that will put her at risk of developing hypertension. And first pregnancies, without a doubt, are a more increased risk. Equally, first pregnancies, all those women who have had a uh, already a past pregnancy where um, they, you know, struggled with gestational hypertension or we're bordering on a you know preeclampsia. We know that those women, we have to hold them a bit closer and be a bit more preventative with those women as well. And can you explain that that mechanism between autoimmunity and increased risk? There's mechanisms of inflammation, and we're still trying to really kind of understand it. And the research is still really kind of trying to understand it too. And that there's the risk of hypertension, you know, is related to kind of placental insufficiency. So that mm -hmm. can kind of set out right from that first trimester with uh, if, if there was kind of questions around implant implantation risk. And that's why, you know, we also see that women who are more likely to develop gestational hypertension, they're more likely to have history of implantation failure, miscarriage history, intrauterine growth restriction. So we know that you have to kind of look at that whole spectrum of first to third trimester health. And, you know, fascinatingly, I mean, it's just so uh, fascinating that we know that the paternal genes play a role as well. And again, it's really, you know, requires a lot more research, but we know that there's some kind of autoimmune mechanisms that are at play because pregnancy hypertension is much more common 
not only in first pregnancy, but first pregnancy with that paternal material. Mm. So if that woman goes on to have another pregnancy with another man or another sperm donor, her risk for developing hypertension elevates again. And with every subsequent pregnancy with the same man or sperm, the risk actually minimises. So we know that her immune system is having a response to paternal DNA. And paternal DNA is, again, and it's a lot of kind of emerging evidence, but really fascinating evidence that paternal genes have been really found to regulate placental development mm-hmm. and a um, responsible for the fetal side of the placenta mm. so and that those early development of blood vessels of the placenta into the uterine wall so if that woman's immune system so if she has already kind of pre-existing you know inflammatory autoimmune miscarriage mechanisms going on that we know her immune system can have a bit of a response potentially to that paternal dna mm, that's really interesting it's fascinating <laughs> We know that if a woman has had a past history of disordered eating, that is also going to increase her risk. We know that the closer her pregnancies are will increase the risk and there's kind of questions around is that because of increased oxidative stress or there's time for, you know, maternal nutritional recovery between her pregnancies so we know there's like you know a lot of nutrients that are associated with risk you know vitamin d deficiency great studies around you know if women are low in antioxidants like vitamin c vitamin e it's also going to increase her risk elevated homocysteine will increase her risk so that's why when you've been able to kind of work with uh, that couple or that woman right from preconception we've captured all that information we've tested her for that I mean, I routinely test, you know, pretty much all my patients' homocysteine levels, all their vitamin D levels. We're often checking their blood sugar or their HbA1c if we know that they're insulin resistant. So the earlier you can get on top of all those risk factors, you know, that you know that you're going to have better outcomes for her. Belle Roundtree is a naturopath from the Mornington Peninsula and, like the others, is a strong advocate of preconception care for mum and dad. Without getting on my soapbox, because paternal preconception care is one of my um, absolute passion areas, but what isn't often spoken about is the paternal factors that can influence the health of the mother through pregnancy and can certainly influence preeclampsia risk as well. So we know that paternal obesity, so paternal BMI is just as important as maternal BMI for preeclampsia risk. So it certainly can be a very powerful conversation to have when they come in to see me to kind of expand the thinking of the importance of preconception care for men, because certainly they have a significant influence on the conception process. They're certainly contributing information to the future health of their baby, but what's often not spoken about is also their potential to have a very positive influence on the health of the pregnancy as well. So that's always one of the things I'll happily jump up and down about.
Honestly, it was the perfect pregnancy. Um, so from when I found out, it was very early days. Um, and yeah, I had no cravings. I wasn't sick at all. Alex Hills, now mum of boy-girl twins and a naturopath. And it was just, everything was going perfect mm. until towards the end. Okay. And then everything sort of went downhill. So what happened at that time, that 24-week mark? So around then I started to notice that um, obviously I started to show and my, you know, started to get a bit puffy and um, I've always sort of been a bit paranoid of having a bit of a moon face. <laughs> and I noticed that, yeah, it's like my face started to sort of swell, but my biggest thing was my feet. My feet and my ankles started to, to swell and I started to, I guess, obviously get a bit nervous. But again, mm. first pregnancy um, with twins, it's just like, okay, well, you know, fat feet, it's a thing, right? Mm. Like, you know, it's it's just part mm. and parcel. Yeah, yeah. And so what happened when you went to the, the doctor? So I was having regular midwife checks. Mm. Um, the great thing was because I'm here in Brisbane, I was going to Mother Mothers. So I felt very comfortable that I was in the perfect place mm. if I was going to have a twin pregnancy to go there for checks. Mm. But again, it was very sort of watch in the door, um, you know, tick, 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 yep, cool, you know, just a bit of a high five, out you go. So when I mentioned, you know, my, my swollen ankles and feet, it was mm. it was very much passed off as, you know, it's normal. And I mean, this is coming into summer as well in Brisbane. Mm. So it the weather was warming up. So you continued on for how long thinking that it was normal for, for a good month and mm. they started to get worse and worse so that was the biggest I guess looking back that was the one telltale sign that I probably shouldn't have just passed that off mm. but you know when you raise these things and it's like no it's just pregnancy this is normal mm. it wasn't normal for me and I had a desk job so I was sitting down mm. and I really wasn't moving a lot and you know I was elevating my feet and trying to do everything I could to do you know to sort of stop them swelling and mm. it just kept getting worse mm. so can you mm. give me an idea of how much they they swell like a um comparison or? it was just it looked like my foot all the toes were just completely joined together oh. um it just i it honestly felt like my feet were going to pop it felt like mm. it they there can't be much more pressure unless my feet split that's how bad it was yeah. um they weren't sore mm. but I'd be able to press my finger into it and that indent would just stay for ages mm. it was just the fluid was just yeah intense really mm. it wasn't until six weeks later at 30 weeks that Alex was taken seriously so it was actually the day of my baby shower and so the night before I had this really bad headache like this pressure headache mm. and they kept saying to me previously um you know if you feel off they just kept using the word if you feel off go get checked at a hospital because it mm. could be preeclampsia, but that was kind of it. There was no other, you know, they didn't sort of go through a checklist as far as like swollen feet, headaches, mm. um, you know, anything else. It was just if you feel off. So the night before my, my baby shower, I felt off and because I never get headaches, mm. you know, I started to get like it felt like pressure in my head mm. and I kept thinking I can't miss my baby shower. Mm. So then the next day I got up, um, went to the baby shower mm. and I had full on kaleidoscope vision. Um, people's faces were blurred. I can't even tell you who was there on the day. Mm. People were having a conversation with me and then I found out later they were saying, yeah, you seemed a bit vague, but we just thought, you know, it was, it was a scorcher of a day mm. as well. Um, they just said, you know, we thought, you know, because, you know, it was your baby shower and, you know, it was a hot day. We thought you were just a bit stressed. Um, mm. But, yeah, I couldn't even see their faces. Everything was just... 
blurred. And then it wasn't until the end of the baby shower that I sort of pulled my mum and my husband aside and explained to them. And of course they flipped out mm. because it's like a silly girl. My husband mm. took me kicking and screaming to the hospital. Oh, you were kicking and screaming, screaming I did, even then. Oh, I did not want to go. I was just put my foot down. I guess because I had such the perfect pregnancy, mm. there's a, in the back of my mind, I didn't want to admit that something was off and something was wrong. Mm. But yeah, sort of went in and because I presented quite well, like I mean, I was talking and it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, swollen, but I mean, I'm pregnant with twins. And they sort of sat me to the side and yeah, I guess they triaged me that, you know, well, she seems fine. So I sat there for quite a while mm. and eventually went in, hooked me up, checked my blood pressure and it was through the roof. Yeah. Um, I think it was about 196 over 124. Wow. And the nurse checked it three times. and To make sure it was accurate. To make sure that there was nothing wrong with it. She actually thought there was something wrong with the machine. And I'll, it's just her, the look of her face was just mm. burnt into my mind mm. with how panicked all of a sudden she was because it's like, well, this is probably gone on much longer than what it should have. And so when you saw her face, how did you feel? I guess because I couldn't see the blood pressure machine and I was sort of facing the other way and my husband and her were sitting opposite me and just pure shock but yeah then all of a sudden then things got moving Mm. so it was very much like oh there's immediately two doctors in my room there's someone come in they're putting a cannula in and they've turned around and said um you can't go home we're admitting you now and Mm. you know at 30 weeks I hadn't finished the nursery I had my baby shower I had all my presents from my baby shower in the boot of the car that was parked at the hospital Mm. there was just so much I guess in my mind and I'm like I'm just not prepared you can't be in hospital I can't be in hospital much to do yeah exactly yeah (laughs) I've got furniture to put together and, you know, things are arranged. Like, yeah. Belle Roundtree says what Alex experienced were classic preeclampsia symptoms. As the condition progresses, some of those clinical signs can include things like edema or swelling in the feet, the hands, the ankles, the face. We also keep an eye out for things like Um, severe headaches that don't respond to pain relief, any vision changes, dizziness, referred pain, so pain in the shoulder or pain just under the ribs as well. And also two things like shortness of breath and nausea and vomiting can certainly be part of the picture as well. Amanda Haberecht. And it can go up very quickly. You know, she can be, at the moment, I've got one of my patients who her preg I mean she's a twin pregnancy she is 46 they are donor eggs so she's at a lot of risk she's had polycystic ovaries in the past etc cetera, etc cetera. and her blood pressure is just all of a sudden she's developing fluid and her we're at 32 weeks and it's happening kind of quite quickly so we're really kind of putting on our therapeutic boots So with her, I mean, she's just a great patient because she's been working with me for a long time and I've been able to kind of watch her vitamin D and watch her homocysteine and everything. I mean, the great thing with her is her there, she's got no protein in her urine at the moment, but her blood pressure is spiking around. But, you know, we've increased her calcium and magnesium. There's really good evidence for calcium lowering blood pressure. I've increased her vitamin D which, again, um, helps dampen those autoimmune inflammatory mechanisms. Vitamin D is also, you know, obviously so crucial for calcium absorption. 
you know, choline. There's great evidence and it's emerging. We know choline's the new kind of nutrient on the block with kind of pregnancy and miscarriage risk, but definitely for placental methylation, choline is a crucial nutrient and, you know, definitely more recent studies and not huge studies, but some great studies to show that it can reduce the risk of preeclampsia. I've also increased her magnesium, you know, using ubiquinol. In We know that naturally a woman's CoQ10 levels will drop in third trimester and more kind of significantly for our older mums as well. So often in the third trimester I am prescribing ubiquinol and vitamin E again if we're seeing that and that's been the thing that I'm watching with this particular patient because the baby's growth she's got two little girls on board and it started to plateau so and one of the one of the twins we're getting kind of concerned of so that we know that we need to be promoting blood flow with her so it's ubiquinol it's vitamin e it's arginine I'm using arginine I've used arginine is again incredibly safe in pregnancy um We've got to watch our patients with herpes. With that, with it, with my patients with herpes, I often do citrulline, which can convert to arginine, and they like the taste so much better. Arginine's got a bit of an awful taste, but you know, you see really good results that we know that both citrulline and arginine will promote nitric oxide, really promote good blood flow. So, especially if we're seeing the baby's growth start to plateau. I'm going to be doing everything to promote nitric oxide as well as looking at her antioxidants. And what kind of dose of citrulline would you give or, or, or of arginine for that matter? Well, arginine you can go up to about, you know, four grams really quite safely with, you know, and a couple of grams of citrulline as well. So it just depends on the patient. You can often get a really good response quite quickly. So obviously you will dose dependent on their risks, what week there are in pregnancy too. Like if we're getting towards the end of pregnancy, you know, and especially if they're talking about, you know, starting to induce that woman or they're talking about a Caesar delivery sooner, you know. With this patient of mine, yeah, she's at week 32 at the moment, so we're doing everything to keep those babies on the inside. my mind I was going to be in there for a couple of days until they fix me and send me home um and then by about day two I think I started to bully the nurses as in like I really need to go home I really really want to go home but my blood pressure was not moving it was just spiking and even though I was on like blood pressure meds at this point that's when the doctor sort of came in and just said no no, that's it, you know, and I guess I'm like, well, what's the goal here? Like, are you going to fix me, um, go home? And then that's when they sort of said to me, look, the only way to cure preeclampsia is to have the babies. Um, and I just hit about 31 weeks at this point. For the next two weeks, Alex Hills was hospital bound. And in my mind, 35 weeks, if I could just get to 35 mm-hmm. weeks, that was a good that was a good number to get to. Mm. And then it was 33 weeks and one day. Mm. And I was down in the birthing suite because towards the end, every 
every day I was in the birthing suite because my blood pressure was spiking. I was having to go on IV at this point. Mm. And then I'll never forget the, the whole group of doctors, all of the different ones I'd sort of met, um, mm-hmm. you know, over the two weeks mm-hmm. came in with their clipboards and they sort of said, look, you know, we can't do anything else. Mm-hmm. You, you're going to have to have your C-section. We've scheduled it for two hours. And at first I was like, yep, okay, cool, this is going to happen. And as soon as they've turned to chat, I just lost it. I just started sobbing. Jane Hutchins is not surprised by Alex's story. My research has a large part of it was interviewing women with cardiac disease in pregnancy and postpartum, everything but hypertension I'm researching. And lack of or delays in diagnosis or incorrect diagnosis was a really big part of that. And one of the issues is, one of the issues, not the only one, is that some of the kind of normal symptoms of pregnancy mirror some cardiovascular symptoms. So why the woman that you're speaking with, they said, no, you look okay and on paper you're okay. Again, that's kind of why they're moving away from being really strict. Oh, you're not over 140 on 90 and you have no protein in your urine, so we don't care. It's like, okay, well, you don't feel well. You've got some symptoms. Let's just make sure it is not that. Let's see if your liver enzymes are elevated. Let's look at your um, platelets, that sort of thing. See if she's got any of those digestive symptoms, right up a quadrant pain with preeclampsia. Ask her about her headaches. Are they new? Are they worse? Do they resolve with normal strategies? She's got any visual disturbances, that sort of thing. So part of it is that there's no really clear cutoff line, even though we've got numbers because we have to have some numbers. It is variable across women. It does mimic some normal symptoms of pregnancy. The earlier in pregnancy you are, you shouldn't have any of that. <laughs> you know, if you're 39 weeks, you might think, oh, let's see how you go. But if you're 29 weeks, you think, right, bells go off. Yeah, yeah. So what I would recommend is persisting and keeping on raising the issue. And that's very difficult to do in general. It's really hard to self-advocate in health. It is harder for women because women tend to be dismissed in healthcare more than men, including and probably in particular for cardiovascular and pain. They're the two things that they get dismissed about because there's an under-acknowledgement of cardiac disease in women, particularly younger women and pregnant women. And, you know, we're told not to, you know, and to be nice. You know, I sort of had a problem, they said it was okay, now my job's to go away and thank them. Whereas you need to ramp it up, and usually women won't do that until they're scared to death. Mm, Yeah. Or scared for their baby, even more importantly. That's what motivates most women to take action when otherwise they'd be polite and sit back. So I guess it's really good to know what you've just mentioned, the things for people to really look out for and know when to push and ask for further uh, help. Yeah. And look, if I, even if, if I had symptoms like I have reflux that isn't going away with the SOMAC that you just gave me or um, I have this right upper quadrant pain, like, even if you don't have preeclampsia, you deserve to have that treated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you deserve mm-hmm. to get some sort of resolution from those horrible symptoms. Yeah. So we need to look out for the big, bad, nasty things, but we also just need to make people feel better so they don't suffer any more than they have to in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's just a humanity thing. I think trust yourself. As in, mm-hmm. It's harder with your first pregnancy because you've got no idea if this is normal or not. Go with your gut and advocate and just keep advocating. And it doesn't mean you have to be 
rude. And sometimes you have to get to the point where you start swearing. Um, <laughs> yeah, you have to advocate because the ramifications are too great for you and your baby during pregnancy, during birth and long term. What are those ramifications? So, you know, for those women postpartum that you're seeing, what, what are you seeing as a result of, of what's happening in pregnancy? So having hypertension in pregnancy massively increases your chance of having cardiovascular disease thereafter. So at 10 years after having a birth, you're two and a half times more likely to have any kind of cardiac event if you had high blood pressure in pregnancy. And it's much more than that if you had preeclampsia. So in another study that's looked at more than a million people to see the long-term cardiovascular outcomes, women with preeclampsia had twice the risk of developing cardiovascular disease and usually a decade earlier. But if you had metabolic syndrome and preeclampsia, you had 12 times the risk. So that's fairly big. And who who has cardiovascular or hypertension, preeclampsia and metabolic syndrome? Women with PCOS. So that's massive. So you're more likely to get cardiac disease and you're more likely that you'll get it 10 years earlier than someone who didn't have hypertension in pregnancy. Mm. So it's really, really significant. But even within pregnancy, if you have significant hypertension, particularly if you tip over into the preeclampsia, you have a much greater chance of having a stroke, of having placental abruption, so the placenta peels away before, before the baby's been born. And the other thing is that you're much more likely to have interventions in birth. And once you have any intervention by a midwife or an obstetrician, it kind of sets off this cascade. And you have one and it's like, oh, look, now you've got two interventions, now you've got three interventions, Mm. now you've got four, and we're just about to do the caesarean. And, you know, that might be life-saving and absolutely essential, but there's a very clear path from one intervention. It snowballs. So, and then you have side effects of interventions. So during pregnancy, there's definitely that. You're more likely to have a preterm baby and the earlier you birth your baby, the worse it is for the baby. Clearly, they can be fabulous. But you you want to get as close to 39 weeks as you possibly can. You're more likely to have a low birth weight baby, whether he or she is early or not. And, you know, this is hypertension, but you've got vascular stuff happening at the placental level and oxidative stuff, and that may impact on the nutrients getting to your bum. Mm. So, the, you know, lots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lots of stuff. Yeah. And, and, but I also would say if you have preeclampsia and you're really sick, you go to ICU, your baby goes to the neonatal ICU, you also have trauma. Yeah. So that's what we really need to pick up on as well. For the woman at the time and thereafter, And with another layer of that, if she's going to have another baby, Mm. because her chances of going through that again are fair, (laughs) certainly more than if she'd not had that with her previous pregnancy. And so I I work supportively with women and and discuss really openly some of those risks. But I also refer to perinatal mental health professionals because there's, you know, I do you know, from one to four and they do from four to 100. You You have to kind of be really clear about how much you can do. But sometimes just having that conversation about, oh, my goodness, how scared were you, is enough. It's like, you know, I've not even spoken to anyone about this. What do you do to manage these women in that postpartum period? Yeah, I guess it depends, you know, on all all the variables. Do I know them? How long ago was it? Are they unwell now? So preeclampsia or gestational hypertension should 
depending on who you read, resolve within six to 12 weeks postpartum and your blood pressure should go back to normal. Oh, on that, one of the really important things, take some of the blood pressure. <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, that's really obvious. Um, <laughs> I couldn't tell you the number of people who don't have their blood pressure taken. But you know, kind of patching up the bits that you can. So if she's depleted in particular nutrients, mm. bump them up. If she's low in vitamin D, if she's anemic, if she's low in iodine, all of that sort of stuff, that kind of just, okay, let's just patch up those bits and they're, they're foundational things. Mm. Really supporting her on sleep and telling her, uh, giving her, sorry, some skills around negotiating and saying no. I know that's not a very, well, what, what medication do you give? But no. that matters massively. Mm, definitely. So, so the pandemic was really bad for lots of healthcare issues, obviously, but it's actually really good for women who struggle to set boundaries with people visiting them in hospital and postpartum. So, oh, really? Sorry, I'd love to see you, but I can't. You know, we're in lockdown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think I had more women who liked that than didn't. Mm. which is interesting and, and for all of us there's that conversation of well why why are we going to go back to the things that we didn't like yeah <laughs> so is this going to be use this as a cue for how you're going to move forward so managing time managing sleep so clearly particularly in the early days sleep's just a non-thing but managing how you manage that so resting when you can't sleep resting as much as you can while you're breastfeeding overnight or bottle feeding overnight, all of those sorts of things. And magnesium, nervines, B vitamins, all of those kind of really foundational things, antioxidants, lots of antioxidants, calcium, omega-3 fatty acids. Mm. So there's no kind of wildly unique fancy thing Mm. but it's the person in the situation that's changed Mm. so working with her on that at an individual level and what she needs to do most for her at this time whether she's three weeks or eight months postpartum you know I see people who get to talk about their trauma for the first time four years postpartum when they're about to have another baby and I say what was it like last time and then they start talking about yeah. it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then they say, my God, I've never talked about that. And look at me, I'm crying. It's like, well, mm. cool, this is a good time to talk about it then. Mm, absolutely. Because you don't, because everyone's like, oh, you've got a baby, how cute, let's play with the baby. You're right? Okay, cool, let's, let's play with the baby, you know. Apart from nutritional and herbal interventions and all the should-dos and don'ts, Jane says just listen and support. And you have to be open to that and women have to be open to that as well. And we have to be open to the fact that a woman might say, I've got preeclampsia, I'm just bailing and I'm going to high-risk clinic because that is all I can do because I need to go every two days and it's just too damn much. And we have to say, totally cool, I'm here Mm. and that's okay and we need to not take that on on our ego and we need to not say, well, isn't she an idiot because I could have given her fish oil. So but be there for when she wants to talk about it. So, like, you know, check in. How are you going? Everything all right? Saw this article on whatever you might be interested in. Hey, look, mindful Amazon. Do you want to go and do 10 minutes meditation a day? And they'll probably contact you postpartum. Let them know there's a lot of stuff that we can do, particularly to help you recover postpartum. 
So being clear about boundaries and not being offended. Mm. Because when you can go from preeclampsia to eclampsia to dead pretty damn quick. So that's not the place to prance around with your ego. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> really it's not about me. <laughs> <laughs> no. Damn it. Alex could not agree more. I think that that was one of my biggest stresses and I just felt like a failure, like Mm. I really did. And I think the other hard thing is because a lot of naturopaths, we're all on those groups, right? I mean, you know, like I started joining mum's groups and that was, oh my goodness, that's a whole different (laughs) ballgame. But then when I was looking in the naturopath groups, because I wanted support, I Mm. needed support, Mm. I'm... I'm a very social person naturally and I was now at home with these two babies mm. and needing to know, okay, now what do I do? And I thought, okay, I'll go into, you know, my peers and mm. see what they have to say. And it just was so disheartening. It honestly was so disheartening because I felt like a lot of things were being blamed on women if they chose to do different things. And in my mind, I didn't have a choice. I just... If I didn't have a C-section, I would have died. My babies probably would have died. It was just, it was to that point where I'm just like, that was my option. I didn't get to do the whole seeding and, you know, I didn't get to do the cuddle and I didn't get to have a choice with, you know, what was, you know, what was going to happen, you know, with the umbilical cord and, you know, all these sorts of things that it's Mm -hmm. like, you know what, that would be fantastic in a perfect world, but it wasn't a perfect situation. It was like a die situation. Mm -hmm. And then the breastfeeding, my breastfeeding journey was just, again, so stressful because I just knew that, you know, you're just trained, right? The Mm -hmm. breast is best. And when I hear that term now, oh my goodness, I just want to bang my head against a wall because I'm like, no, fed is best. It's just, you know, every situation is so different and I struggled and I couldn't. And, you know, I even went on medication to try to get my milk production up and then that, you know, blocked a duct and then I had an infection and it just, and it got to that point where I was so headstrong that I need to do this because that's what I think is right, that I was just burning myself out and Mm -hmm. thankfully I had my my mum and my husband there that were seeing me become this absolute wreck I've had I had two newborns Mm. um I was struggling to breastfeed I wasn't getting enough milk I was getting up every couple of hours pumping so I wasn't sleeping Mm -hmm. I was still on my blood pressure was still over the shoal and they basically had an intervention with me and said you gotta stop you know you you need to be healthy to look after them and this is not making you healthy and I remember then for the next week I just cried because we went to formula and (laughs) oh no you know the devil and it was just you know Mm. but I had to and it was for me in that situation the best thing for me Mm. because it took that huge pressure off and it meant that I could be present and I could actually, you know, really look after every other aspect of my babies and then also my husband could help. Um, so we basically split the babies and he had one and I had the other one. Mm. And in the middle of the night, if we heard one cry, I would sort of both listen and be like, no, it's yours. In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we continue the conversation, this time on gestational diabetes with naturopaths Amanda Haberecht, Bill Roundtree and Jane Hutchins.
Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept. Thank you.